That was me drinking a sip of my third martini. This is going to be a debacle. All right, let's do this. Come on. Where's my piece of paper? My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, of any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. This is a story that starts in the 19th century, objectively anyway. For me, personally, this story starts about 2001, so almost 20 years ago, the beginning of the century, the beginning of the millennium, however you want to phrase that, and ends just a couple of months ago. So this is a 20-year odyssey for me. And that odyssey is Danvers State Hospital in Danvers, Massachusetts. Danvers State Hospital was completed in 1878 during the big sanitarium boom of that century. All across this country, states began building asylums faster than the Amish raised barns. Many of these institutions were constructed according to what was called the Kirkbride Plan. It was named after its originator, Dr. Thomas Kirkbride. His theory was that if you treated the mentally troubled well, then they would get well. Or at least they would seem happy, and those of us not in asylums wouldn't feel as bad. So these Kirkbride buildings were usually large, sprawling, architecturally interesting affairs that followed the same big, grandiose layout and were purposely constructed in idyllic settings. So basically like giant mansions out in the country. That's what these things were. Danvers State Hospital was one such Kirkbride building, and probably the most famous one, although I might be a little biased on this one, but I think, if not the most famous one, it's one of the more famous Kirkbride buildings. Back in the day, it was also known as Danvers State Insane Asylum, back when insane was a medical term. It had a central administration building with two staggered wings going behind it that made up the entire complex. It was red-bricked, mini-gabled, and set like an evil castle on the crest of Hathorne Hill, a scenic hump of forested land right with an eyeshot of Boston. At its most crowded, Danvers housed some 2,400 patients plus support staff. If all of that sounds hard to fund, giant buildings, massive acreage, thousands of patients, it was. Eventually, the second law of thermodynamics set in for all of these sanitariums, not just Danvers, but all of them across the country, and the conditions of these asylums really got bad. That was due to budget cuts, the basic expense of keeping such expansive things running, and general overcrowding. Plus, of course, evolving ideas about how to care for the mentally troubled, and what even mentally troubled meant, and who fit that definition. Most of the asylums that were built during this period, the Kirkbride buildings especially, shut down after a century or so, 100 years. Danvers lasted until 1992, which to me is a pretty recent year, but to most people is still a pretty antique year. Although, before 1992, it had been experiencing death spasms pretty regularly. So, for the next decade, from about 1992 to somewhere around 2002, Danvers sat decaying up there on Hathorne Hill like some kind of stubborn, cancer-ridden vulture, just daring the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to put its crumbling interiors to some purpose other than as a playground for urban explorers or fodder for the local spook stories. Meanwhile, it grew to new heights of popularity over its sister Kirkbride establishments when the horror movie Session 9 was filmed within its rotting halls in the year 2001. Thereabouts, anyway. And that's when I come into the story. That's when I discovered Danvers State Hospital. 
In this movie, a small crew of asbestos removal professionals try to detoxify the rotting remains of the asylum so that it can be reused. And then spooky stuff happens. It was really this abandoned asylum that they were filming in that was the star of this movie and really made this movie. The atmosphere, the feel of it, what they could do with the production value. You could tell that this was a real abandoned asylum. So after I found out about this, 2001. So in 2001, I was living in Maryland, I believe. It was toward my last gasps of living in Maryland. And I was working in Virginia. And I remember I was about to take my first real road trip in New England. It was a solo road trip. It was just me. I had all these plans. It was the time I saw Sleepy Hollow for the first time and the time I saw Salem for the first time. And on that road trip, I wanted to see Danvers State Asylum. But the thing was, from what I could tell on the internet, which was not the internet of today, it was a much more sparser place, the internet of 2001, getting to Danvers Insane Asylum or Danvers State Hospital or the abandoned ruins of the place was impossible. They patrolled it. People got kicked out of it regularly. It was not a place that was easy to experience. However, I also learned on this sparse internet that once a year, they did an official tour for people who were interested in the asylum. Small tour. I can't remember the number of people. It was like 15, 20. It was a very small tour they let through the rotting interiors of this place. And to get on that tour, you had to call at a very specific time. And I really clearly remember sitting in the parking lot of my office place where I was working at the time in Virginia and waiting for that minute to tick in. It was like a morning, it was a morning time, maybe say nine o'clock, eight o'clock. I don't remember what exactly the time, but I was in my car with my cell phone ready to make the call. And then I remember calling too early. I called, I couldn't wait. I couldn't <laughs> stand the anticipation. So I called about three minutes too early before the official time. It immediately got picked up by somebody. I don't know who it was. And they said, sorry, you need to call exactly at the right time in order to be a part of this tour. My bad, I'll call back in three minutes. So I waited three minutes, and the second that hand clicked to the right moment, I called again. Nothing but busy signals. I called again, nothing but busy signals. I remember calling a few times and got nothing but busy signals until it finally connected, and I learned that it had been officially sold out, and I was not going to get a tour of Danvers State Asylum on my big road trip through New England. However, the road trip did take me past Hathorne Hill, and I remember parking in the parking lot of some store. I don't know if it was a Home Depot or a Target or whatever it was. And being able to look up and seeing on a hill in the distance the main tower of Danvers State Asylum sticking up above the trees. It was red. It was a clock tower. It was thin. It had a pointed roof. I remember looking up and seeing it and saying, man, I really wish I was there. And then going on to whatever, Salem or wherever I was going next. It was a small moment in a parking lot. I saw this tower from a very, very, very far away distance. But it turned out I wasn't done with Danvers State Asylum. Nor was anybody else. See, a few years later in 2005, the Danvers State Hospital property was finally sold to a company called Avalon Bay Communities. There were some protests around this, some preservationists who didn't want it turned into condos. But that was the fate of many of these Kirkbride buildings, turned into condos and living spaces. I mean, lots of rooms, a big building, some history. It makes sense. So that's what was the future of Danvers State Hospital. After much demolition, which I followed from afar, I believe at this point I was in Virginia, so I was following the story of Danvers State Hospital from my computer in Virginia. It got demolished, a large fire burned through there, the cause of which was never determined, and the preservationists, you know, still tried to preserve it, which didn't happen. Eventually it got rebuilt as a set of condos and apartment rooms, and it was called Avalon Bay Danvers. So it went from Danvers Insane Asylum to Danvers State Hospital to Avalon Bay Danvers and became a suburban luxury apartment complex complete with swimming pool, 
fitness center, all of this with an easy commute of Boston. And it opened for business or for residents in the year 2008, which just happened to be the year that I moved to New England, to the state of New Hampshire, just 50 miles away from Danvers State Hospital slash Avalon Bay Communities. And just like that, this foreboding, danger-ridden property where trespassers used to be violated became a welcoming neighborhood with pristinely paved roads, evenly clipped grass, and helpful signs directing you to the front door. And now that I was a New Englander, I gladly accepted that invitation. Of course, most of the original building is gone. But the facade, the main facade where that clock tower is, was still around. They kept it for just style points, I guess. So when we drove there after moving to New England, we just drove around the place, the entire circuit of Hathorne Circle, a road that loops around the property without seeing anything of real interest that you couldn't find in any other suburban clatch of many domiciles. It seemed like a nice place to live, honestly. It was really nice to see that iconic facade that I had seen in uh, Session 9 and that I had seen from afar from that parking lot years and years ago. It was great to see that up front, and I was so happy they preserved that. In fact, they call that main building the Kirkbride Building. And after seeing a few of those tenants enter and exit the building, Lindsay and I decided to go in ourselves. Again, this is 2008, right after it opened. I was hoping it would just be an empty lobby, which we could kind of look around briefly and then leave. You know, catch the atmosphere, say I was inside Danvers State Asylum, however changed it was, and then leave. But of course, the second we walked in, there were attendants with brochures who asked if they could help us because it was a brand new building and they were trying to sell all of the apartments and condos. And of course, we pretended to be interested in renting an apartment because I just could not admit to them that I was there because of a horror movie and because of the tragic but also history of the entire property. So we did what anybody would do in that situation and took an application, which I think I still have in my pile of souvenirs from trips. Not filled out, of course, just the application to become a resident of... Avalon Bay, Danvers, slash Danvers Insane Asylum. But the facade of the main building wasn't the only things left over to memorialize the history of the place. Outside, just a discreet distance from the front of the building, was a generic-looking memorial. And I say generic-looking because there were no plaques. It was kind of angled stone or cement faces that were meant to have information plaques. But the only reason I knew it was a memorial, other than just a piece of the landscape of the place, was because it was labeled as such on an apartment map outside the Kirkbride building. So they intended to make that into a Danvers State Hospital memorial. But on this visit here in 2008, it was just so much generic plaque space. But there was one more relic that I'd heard still existed from its former life as a mental asylum. Now, I wasn't sure about it, but I'd heard that the cemetery for Danvers Asylum was still there. That somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 to 800 of the unclaimed patients who lived and died in the building had been interred on the grounds somewhere. Makes sense. Every asylum I've been to, every abandoned asylum I've been to, every repurposed asylum I've been to has had a graveyard somewhere within the vicinity from where they used to bury patients. And in fact, this graveyard for Danvers was actually featured in the movie Session 9. So I think they were eating lunch there or something, but it was actually featured in the movie. So I knew it existed at least during the abandoned phase of Danvers. I just wasn't sure if they would leave it intact for this much more sophisticated, urbane phase of Danvers. After doing a little bit more research before we actually showed up to the place, I learned that at some point, preservationists found the burial ground which was off in the forest a ways and completely hidden in like waist-high weeds and tangled undergrowth. The graves themselves were only marked by two-foot-tall stone pegs adorned with anonymous numbers instead of names. And that's how I remembered it being in the movie as well. So these preservationists got out their rakes, got out their mowers, they cleared the area, 
They researched those anonymous tombstones. They replaced as many of the numbers as they could with names. They removed these posts and put plaques in the ground with actual names on them, and then erected a memorial in the middle of that small graveyard. As part of the deal with the state, Avalon Bay promised to upkeep that cemetery. Now, I knew the cemetery was far enough away from the apartment buildings that it wouldn't be immediately obvious that there was one on the premises. They didn't want people to drive up and say, oh, this way to the administration offices and this way to the asylum dead. So it was, I knew it'd be far off. I knew it wouldn't be labeled, but I knew it was somewhere in the forested region in front of the main building. And it wasn't a giant forest. It was like a, a strip of forest. So we paced along the perimeter sidewalk that wound around the entire property for a bit, hoping we could see the cemetery through the foliage or from afar, just some clue to it that we could just, you know, know that we were going in the right direction. And we didn't want to charge down the hill and across barren fields, just in the hopes of lucking across it. But I knew that also might be a possibility, just from looking at satellite views. Eventually, we found it. It was just across a field outside of that sidewalk in a small patch of forest. Right on the edge of the patch of forest was the entrance. That entrance was marked by a large stone inscribed with the name Danvers State Hospital Cemetery and the subtitle The Echoes They Left Behind, which is, you know, the first time I've ever heard a corpse referred to as an echo, but it works. So even though this patch of ground represented the buried dead from an insane asylum 100 years old or so, it didn't feel like one. There was no headstones set at jarring angles, no broken open mausoleums harboring ghouls, and I didn't see one giant rat. Instead, it was nicely kept open, a few trees, a low stone fence running along two sides, and polished stone plaques inlaid in the ground with the name and the date range of the interred. It was a nice little cemetery. But if you've seen session nine, you know that the first thing I did once I entered that graveyard was to look for grave number 444. This was the grave of Mary Hobbs, who has a very prominent, but still somewhat vague, role in Session 9. So I looked around for it and found the plaque. It's there, but only the number marks it, number 444. Apparently they couldn't find the name of whoever was buried there. And of course, Mary Hobbs is a fictional character, so it wasn't Mary Hobbs buried there. So then just looking around, I saw right outside the edge of the, you know, the well-maintained parts of the cemetery in the forest, stacks of concrete pillars. These are all the old cemetery headstones that were up there before they turned into uh, a bunch of plaques. So again, I looked for 444, didn't find it. I would love to have seen it because it was actually featured in the movie, the actual cement column with its hexagonal top and the number right inside of it. But I never did find it. I found 455. And I found one that was broken after the first two digits, 4-4, but I never could find Mary Hobbs' gravestone. So this was the early days of Otis, 2008. Back then, I would write about an adventure as soon as I had it. And I did that here for Danvers. So June 8th, 2008, I wrote about it. And at the very end of this article, I think it's still there on the Otis website, which I'll link to in the show notes, I finished that article with a plea. And that plea was that if anybody that was reading this lived at Avalon Bay Danvers, I would love it if they could invite me over and allow me to watch Session 9 on the grounds where Session 9 happened. So <laughs> I was basically a stranger asking strangers to invite me into their house and watch a horror movie with me. And a few months later, somebody said yes. So jump forward just a few months, and I found myself driving to Danvers with my wife, with Lindsay, to watch Session 9 on the site where it was filmed, which also just happened to be an ancient, not ancient, but an old asylum. I remember this night very clearly. It was nighttime. It had to be nighttime. I had to watch a horror movie in the best atmosphere possible, which is nighttime. 
And Tropical Storm Hannah, which had been moving steadily up the East Coast all weekend, was fire-hosing whitewater rapids all over my windshield, rendering it almost opaque instead of just the usual dirty. And I was happy that Hannah was visiting because it was the perfect scene to watch a horror movie. By the time we arrived at Danvers, the rain had abated temporarily and with perfect timing. Surrounding that main Kirkbride building was the most luscious bank of fog that a morbid person who was about to watch a horror movie could want. Even if our hosts turned out to have the Saw's family engraved in all their cutlery, it might have been worth it for the glorious sight of that peaked red brick rising through an aura of diffused light. We met up with our hosts, Carol and JC, it was a mother and a daughter, and... It was the daughter who lived there, and she took us to her apartment, which would have been right where one of the sanitarium's wings would have been. We settled in, and we watched Session 9. Despite it being the marquee event of the evening, I'll refrain from narrating this portion of the night, as it was exactly what you think. Snacks, couches, cracks on David Crusoe. However, it was sometimes hard to connect this nice apartment in which I sat, and the surrounding buildings and grounds I had just walked through with the haunted derelict dominating that television screen. After the movie, we all talked for a bit, and they were gracious enough to let me photograph myself with their television freeze-framed on an overview shot of the old sanitarium, and then we parted. It was getting close to the witching hour, and while their night was 15 minutes and a hygiene ritual away from bed, I had a bit more to do before I left the property. I wanted to visit the cemetery again, but at midnight. Of course, by this time I'd forgotten that a storm was raging outside. Nevertheless, we parked our car by the still-unfinished Danvers Memorial and waited for the rain to stop so that I could trek down into the cemetery in the dark. I was going to be on my own for this one. Lindsay was going to stay in the car, and I was going to trek through the rain across the field into the forest to visit a cemetery. We sat in that car for a while, but the storm just did not let up. Finally impatient, I decided to brave it. And I use the term brave only in the most superficial sense, meaning I went out into the storm. Turns out those easy directions I mentioned for finding the cemetery in the daytime are much harder to follow at night. I got turned around on more than one occasion, slogged through boot-high mud, ran through a field in the dark, fell down more than once, just like those chased victims in horror movies aren't supposed to, and returned to the car twice, bedraggled and horrific looking, to give up. There's a happy ending here because I actually did find it, but only after Lindsay pointed to it from the dry safety of the car. It's right over there. So by the time I made it to the cemetery, I was so wretched and so cold and so wet and so muddy and so tired and it was so late that it was impossible for me to be creeped out like I was hoping I would be. I should have been creeped out. I wish I could have been creeped out, but I was miserable. You can't be creeped out when you're miserable. Still, I did it. I hung out there. I took some pictures. And the best prize of the night, on the way out, we stumbled across one of the few remaining artifacts featured in Session 9 that was left over from Danvers' days as a sanitarium. I've already talked about the facade. I've already talked about the cemetery. But there's one other thing it was a gazebo-like structure sitting at the edge of the property with a set of stairs that descends a hill behind it. It was directly right in the movie. I think, again, they were eating lunch there or hanging out there or something like that, but it was in the movie, and I had somehow missed that landmark on my first visit. Now, that was technically the end of my relationship with Danvers Insane Asylum. I did it. I visited it. I watched the movie there. I saw artifacts that over from both the sanitarium days and from the Session 9 filming days. Years later, I would appreciate the town of Danvers anew, as I learned that it was the site of the Salem witch hysteria. Now, the trials themselves happened in Salem proper, but that was only the trials. The actual hysteria happened before that. The questioning, the two young girls going crazy, all of that happened in Danvers, which at the time was part of Salem. It was 
Salem Village. It was the farmland farther away from the ocean. Most of our records are from the time before the actual civic trials, and all of that happened in Danvers. In fact, Danvers Asylum itself sat on Hathorne Hill, and that was in the family of Judge Hathorne, who was the main villain in the Salem witch trials. It was his father's land, William Hathorne. And that was it. That was the end, I thought. Now, I had always heard about a second Danvers Cemetery, one that wasn't on the property. I'd filed it away. I didn't know exactly where it was. And then one day, somebody sent me the exact location. The second Danvers Asylum Cemetery is located in the town of Middleton, which is right next door to Danvers. And the cemetery itself is at the intersection of Gregory Street and Milton Road, which is within eyesight of that clock tower that I had seen for the first time so long ago in the early 2000s. To get there, it's not really visible from the street. You have to kind of have faith. (laughs) At that intersection, there's a few places you can pull off. And then there is this dirt road that takes off through the field that feels like when you take it, (laughs) then you're trespassing. But once you're about halfway down that road, which doesn't take long, you see a small little well-kept cemetery and you realize it's okay to be there. The beauty of this Danvers Asylum Cemetery is that they still maintain the original markers, the cement columns with the hexagonal tops and the numbers in it. There wasn't many, there was maybe about a hundred of these things in a very small piece of land right in the middle of a field. And there was a memorial in the middle that kind of listed the names of the dead. So we went there, we hung out, we saw it, uh, we looked at the names. It was a beautiful spot, not a bad place to spend eternity. In fact, we were so moved by that small little cemetery that we went ahead to revisit Danvers for the first time in years and years. So we got up there and the first thing we noticed was it wasn't Avalon Bay anymore. Apparently, they had sold the property back in 2014 to another group. And this group had renamed the complex Bradley Danvers. Bradley Danvers bought Avalon Bay Danvers for $109 million. Like I said, lots of amenities and within commute of Boston. We drove around it. There was a lot more houses. In fact, the cemetery used to be across a field and that field had been blocked by houses, but there was a path around those houses that allowed you to get to the cemetery. The place had undergone a lot of development, including that anonymous memorial. They had finally placed plaques on that memorial. It showed old photos of the time it was as an asylum. It was a very nice memorial. And that's it from learning about it in the early 2000s via a horror movie to just a few months ago, finding its second cemetery. That is my life with Danvers Asylum. I'll post links to my article about my original visit to Danvers. I'll post a link to my visit to watch session nine on Danvers, and I'll post a link to images of the second cemetery. All on Otis, all easy to find. I know it's been a few months since I've done a podcast, but the stuff I'm pushing, I think, is pretty much the same. Join the Otis Club. I'm still writing about my adventures, visiting Oddity in the time of COVID. My new book, Cursed Objects, my first nonfiction book in a couple years, comes out September 15th. You can pre-order it right now. If you go to Amazon, the publishers put a lot of information about that book. They put a lot of the illustrations, the table of contents, they, they posted the introduction. So plenty of information to go check it out and see if it's your, your kind of book. If it is, please pre-order it. That helps me out a lot. And... That's it. Sorry it's been so long since I did a podcast. It's not been for lack of content. It's been uh, everything else. (laughs) So hopefully this will work. Hopefully this is a good one. Hopefully I'm back in the groove. And in another couple of weeks, I'll have something new for you to listen to. But until then, this has been Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. And I am J.W. Oker. See, I've already messed it up. It's been too long. I am J.W. Oker. And this has been Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast.